0: Hello again. This is Josh Carr uh, at The Real Angle talking today with Stephen Hutto, uh, CEO of 40&M. And let's talk about the markets. Uh, Steve, how are you doing today?
1: I'm great, Josh. I appreciate you uh, having me on your, your podcast. And I guess it's been uh, not 16 years since I took your class, but uh, you know we had worked together when I was at my prior firm uh, with you helping us with our financial model. But um, always enjoyed your class at Columbia uh, roughly, believe it or not, 16 odd years ago.
0: Yeah. No, uh to paraphrase Matthew McConaughey, I, I I keep getting older. The graduate students stay in the same age. Uh, <laughs> it is it is it is funny teaching grad school because I've been doing it at Columbia forever. And when I first started teaching there, I was like the uh, the cool older brother. At least I'd like to believe as much. And somewhere along the line, you become the uncle. And yeah. uh, I guess I'm on my way to. Uh, your grandfather's brother you know (laughs) eventually that's where we all end up but you know uh, man's got to have goals
1: my my uh, grandpa was cool so you're in good company
0: there you go that's got to have goals uh yeah no people sometimes forget I, I do other things than just a podcast but uh no it's it's good so so let's talk a little bit so first off just some basics um physically where are you based in the world
1: Dallas Texas moved back home after uh, 15 years on on various stints in various locations across the United States but came back uh, voted with my feet for a 13% tax savings and uh, being a, a real estate finance investment guy I figured uh, why not
0: it's it's hard to argue it's hard to argue <laughs> against definitely. So yeah so let's talk a little bit. I mean last time we really spoke you were in a investment officer role at a large multinational that was doing very large projects um now you're in the entrepreneurial world if you will um let's talk about the transition Le- what were you do- what were you doing what are you doing now i guess is the best way to talk about it
1: yeah so i was chief investment officer uh but played a lot more roles than that i would i would contend and i don't think this is embellishment but i think uh I think it was a, basically a quasi CEO function, helped build the infrastructure from scratch. It was a publicly traded company or is a publicly traded company. And well, LinkedIn, I mean, it, it's, yeah,
0: it's, we say the name of the company, right? I, I don't
1: yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, GemDale, GemDale, yeah,
0: large, large development firm.
1: Yeah, top 10 builder, China. Uh, bulk of the income, like most Chinese uh, developers, was condos in China. Um, And they're publicly traded in both Hong Kong and the Shanghai Stock Exchange. So when when we started, this was or I started there late 2015 uh, in New York and uh, again, was hired as a CIO. And when I, I didn't know who they were before that, but when I started studying their their books and their financials, I was uh, really surprised to see uh, the, the financial wherewithal of the company, having you know never heard of them before, and then um, they tasked me with uh, the uh, ability to set the, the strategy, the business plans, the markets, the asset types, and so on. So within 30 days of uh, joining the firm, I laid out a business plan and strategy that they stuck to to this day over seven, probably eight years now. Uh, to pretty wild success, we uh, we ended up placing about a billion of equity capital, three billion in projects, call it two billion in construction loans or CMBS or PERM or some sort of combination, mainly ground up development, focused mainly on multifamily ground up and office ground up. We played office extremely well. And this um, is all
0: in the U.S., just to clarify. I mean, they're multinational, this, but you were doing the, the U.S. arm, if you will.
1: Correct. Yeah. I, I, I had, I had told uh, our leadership many a times that if they stuck me in China, I wouldn't know what I was doing. So, <laughs> so Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. Sure. They, w- they wouldn't want me. I said, you wouldn't want me going over there. I'd probably, you know, lose my hair. So, but, uh, but yeah, so we did, we were wildly successful. Uh, I would argue that we were probably one of maybe two um, very, very successful uh, Chinese backed firms. Um, And then a lot of the folks, a lot of the Chinese companies that everybody had heard about, um, you know, their operating style, uh, what Jim Dell did, which was very beneficial, is they gave a lot of autonomy in the early years to those of us with domestic experience. And a lot of our counterparts we would observe a lot of the decisions were being made overseas. And those folks, just as if I would go over to China, they wouldn't want me there because I wouldn't do anything. Or if I was making decisions from America for you know deals in Beijing, probably wouldn't work out too well. Sure. And so a lot of the counterparts um, managed overseas um, and it constrained a lot of the, the local uh, real estate practitioners. And Jim Dell was the opposite. Jim Dell had a uh, has a very engineering mindset. And so they empowered the local teams and we we drove it to pretty great results. I mean, I I would assume if they liquidated their portfolio, I I don't know the portfolio uh, as well as I did maybe a year and a half ago. But I would assume they would net uh, probably close to billion two, maybe.
0: Yeah, no, it's really amazing sort of watching the watching some of these larger multinationals come in i mean you made a few excellent points i think i mean your point about building a local team sure i mean it's you need a local team i mean the this i mean the risk is staying the obvious we remain a very local industry but it's amazing how many it's amazing how many real estate professionals understand location is everything but then somehow when they're staffing up teams they don't hire local teams which to me is the pinnacle of madness because everything is local and everything is political and i mean I've done a little bit of international work and I've realized that we all have the same fights. Like, you know, no one likes traffic, you know? Like, I don't care what country (laughs) you're in. It doesn't matter what your politics are, no one likes traffic, you know? So like, of course you're always gonna have fights about traffic and noise and, you know, local pollution issues and density. And there's always some local community group who hates your thing and dot, 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 you know? So you need a local team to manage that because otherwise you're just adrift. but I think your other point about the the scale of it is remarkable to me because I mean, considering the size of the projects they were doing and how few people even have heard of these guys, I, I think it's just, I, I think it's just remarkable. That, that's... It
1: was it was fun, Josh. I mean, it was it was so much fun for the first kind of three and a half four years while the uh, a lot of autonomy was given. Now the world changed, capital controls and so on started to come in vogue. So, you know. I, everything started changing pretty, pretty rapidly, but that was, you know, out of their control. It was, it was more of a national thing. And then the, yeah, it's a geopolitical well, yeah the geopolitical got real hot. And so sure. we were attuned to that, but, but yeah, it was great. Cause when I, like I said, when we started, we had no process, no procedures, no market, no way to really underwrite deals. You could name an asset class and it was coming in the door ranging from you know, office buildings in Los Angeles to single family land developments to self-storage to fragmented condos above 7-Elevens in San Francisco, just name something and it came through the door. And and I was like, wait, wait, this is chaos. We got to focus. Right. So. We need
0: to pick pick a lane. Even if <laughs> yeah. it's not the right lane, we still need a lane. <laughs> yeah. no, no, that's, that's an excellent point. Now you've transitioned from that to doing the, the entrepreneurial thing. So what is that, I guess, what has that been like? And what are you, what are you looking at now?
1: Yeah. So I've been back and forth. If you, if you kind of look at the trajectory of my career, I, I started at Goldman Sachs. I was probably the worst uh, hire they ever made as an analyst, which scared me straight and uh, whipped me into shape. But, uh, so thank you, Goldman Sachs. <laughs> so for proving, I looked around
0: for proving that you should go somewhere else. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, agree so I, agree I looked
1: around and I was like, man, these, these folks that I'm, uh, my colleagues, I mean, they are just so sharp, so fast, and uh, and it scared me straight. So, mm-hmm. uh, thank you again for for Goldman. But yeah, so I went from what I would call heavy uh, institutional uh, corporate environments, and I've worked at um, entrepreneurial, um, maybe folks that work for a beer companies started their own. But then kind of focused on institutional, like developers locally and in Chicago and, and other places. And so I've had this wide range of experience, including my own. So everything from you know me, which currently I'm the coffee maker and the printer boy, to you know, running this huge enterprise with tons of resources available, tons of capital. Uh, lots of research and data that I could comb through with all of our subscriptions to the various. And I'm a, I'm kind of a data nerd. Uh, When I was growing up, I was a sports nerd and, you know, I could rattle off any baseball stat or football stat. I could tell you what 40 time and what somebody bench pressed. And now that's all real estate. It's
0: (laughs) the same skill set. No, I have a buddy of mine who is a CNBS guy and he also bets heavily on football. And I, and I don't really see a lot of a difference between his day work and his uh, his weekends <laughs> i'm like you're just doing the same damn thing like you're just you're just it's still just numbers on a screen at the end of the day so yeah. you know
1: it's, yes but anyway so to answer your question so yeah today back to entrepreneurialism actually 40m which stands for the intersection of 40th and madison i was right after columbia i was hired as a director of acquisitions for a real estate private equity firm by an adjunct and uh, a couple of us were actually some columbia grads over there and um, you know, one day I looked and this was right at 08. You could feel it. I, I even uh, Mark Zandy, the famous economist, came yep. and spoke to the company and he was like, Hey, this is gonna be really bad. <laughs> so um so I looked out the window one day and with my my buddies from Columbia and we said, What's the name of our company? And we pointed to the intersection of 40 M. So And
0: figured that sounded good. It's, yeah. Uh, no, you know it, it's funny when you when you talk about the the great financial crisis, which I still feel we as a as a people finance that is, people still have not agreed what to call it. You know, is the is it the GFC? Is it the yeah. financial crisis? Is it just
1: subprime?
0: Yeah, is it just 8 You like you yeah. like you know, um, yeah. No, I I had a buddy of mine describe to me that the feeling of 08, the the idea that the other shoe was going to drop, it was described to me once as. Uh, that you're in Paris waiting for the Germans to roll the tanks in. Mm. It was this this moment of like you know it's going to be very bad, but like, like what do, what do you do? You know, yeah. and, and then it just collapsed. It, it was it was insane. So you so you've you've definitely so so now you're doing the entrepreneurial thing. You're you're yes. on your own. You're looking at stuff. What markets excite you? What asset types interest you? What what what's ringing your bell, so to speak?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of describe the philosophy, I guess. So it's 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 very opportunistic, um, asset agnostic. Uh, there is a focus because I'm I'm I am a believer in focus, but uh, but I'm also a believer in are you being paid for the risk you're taking? And I don't want to drive myself into thin yields because I need a cushion to miss. Um, and so you know, along those lines, you know, if you look at most asset types and cycles and monetary um, policy cycles and so and money supply cycles you know uh, the one business that really stands out to me when I when I look at risk is really the ground lease business and in that space um, mobile home parks have an extremely low default risk assuming you have mostly uh tenant owned homes not park owned homes or landlord owned homes so you're just it's like a parking lot just leasing the ground so we bought some mobile home parks this year um bought some apartment complexes Uh, i sold a retail deal that i held for 11 years um we can get into that underwriting because uh I underwrote what the worst case scenario would be, and it happened, uh, but we still ended up with a 14 IRR over 11-year hold and a three equity multiple, so not that all is, bad.
0: That's as good as you're going to
1: get. But it started at 50% cash on cash, so it was it was the greatest, I used to call it the greatest investment ever, and then when it went vacant because it was a single-tenant restaurant deal, triple net lease, and then it became the worst investment ever. And then it became just got in between the two. Yeah, so. you
0: know, retail—it's the variability. No, the mobile home park business is interesting. I mean, something I've observed, for whatever it's worth, is just—you know—a lot of people have had trouble getting scale on it. Yep. Just because there's not—it's not like you're buying apartment buildings. I mean, it's 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 more fragmented. There are yep. number of mom and pop operators, but for a to pick up a few of them, I, I can definitely see the attraction. Yep. Um, I don't know. I mean, is that something that you're going to be pushing more heavily on? Are you going to keep growing towards mobile homes or, or kind of what are you looking
1: I, at? So I'd like to go upscale uh, with the collateral that's above the ground lease. And so I'm I'm a, a monster. Well, real quick to answer your scale question, you're Good absolutely lease. correct. Years ago. Uh, so I took a, a, believe it or not, there's a boot camp, mobile home park boot camp and I would contend it's almost as good as Columbia and uh, it's called the Mobile Home Park University.
0: <laughs> I'm familiar with this.
1: <laughs> with Frank guys. and Dave, yeah.
0: I've heard of these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah
1: it's really fantastic. So I took it in cool. 2010 and yeah, to to your point the scale effects, you know, I think at the time when I calculated multifamily it was like 13 times the size of mobile home parks. I think there was 3.9 million mobile home parks and and so on so you know you uh, or 3.9 3. million lots so you couldn't get um the scale going like you said however it's just a great asset class and a lot of the institutions started moving in there approximately in 2016 and you saw the just like every other asset class you saw cap rate compression that in 2010 was you could buy and I was kind of an idiot at the time. I was, I was, you know, wanting to buy things at 10 caps. Uh, and, you know, if it was a 9.8, I wouldn't do it. You know, I'm disciplined. And, and then the compression went to sub five. <laughs> so, right. You, so you should
0: have bought everything. You should
1: have. bought Yeah. Everything. Now my neighbor, as far as scale effects, he literally just bought and closed about two weeks ago on 10,000 lots, 46 parks across the country. I think he paid a Uh, about a three cap and you're like why would anyone pay a three cap in this environment uh his projections on that particular park is is he'll trend to about a seven and a half because the lot rent is so far below where it should be this particular operator was like $380 no matter where you are
0: no it's it's interesting it's interesting i mean i just figured i'd ask i mean there's been a lot of talk in the news about the mobile home park business as far as regulatory issues whether or not it's something that's going to get more regulated down the road and I realize that varies state by
1: state and what have you it's the uh, not to not to go and we can go upstream on this but uh not to go too but it's it's the only true form of affordable housing that doesn't need to be subsidized so and again everybody kind of thinks of mobile home parks like a you know ben graham cigarette butt and you didn't want to brag about it because you're the guy that owned the mobile home park or the gal that owned the mobile home park uh but the or the cops and all that but but the reality is if we want to attack affordable housing this is really the best tool to do it
0: sure no and i've heard that argument we're in an affordable housing crisis uh and we don't really it's not that we don't have solutions it's that we're just choosing not to implement them yeah um so yeah no i i definitely hear that so Uh, structure you're doing deals now on your own are you doing them as a typical sort of like you're the gp you're raising some lp equity sort of typical gplp deal by deal thing
1: yeah friends and family uh some of my harvard classmates some of my columbia classmates um just uh and even some texas tech and some lifelong friends so on the entrepreneurial capital side uh, i am working with uh, on a confidential deal that would be the largest of my personal benefit life not the largest deal i've ever worked on um several hundred million i can't go into detail i'm tied up on every type of ca that took three months to go through but uh but that's my partner in that particular deal is um you know would be a reed
0: okay so so now we're talking institutional again yeah no look i mean and and you know the the blessing is we can always uh we can always do a follow-up you know four months from now and I say four months because whenever anyone says to me they can talk to me in three, it's always four. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, like, <laughs> Might uh, be six.
1: <laughs> that's just
0: something I've learned. Every our industry, I, you know, it's uh, we all get there, but you know, it takes time. It just, you
1: you would been, appreciate this. I had to modify twenty five thousand Excel cells. That is also not an embellishment. It wore me down unbelievable i was so tired uh my my wife was like man you're brain dead i said yes i'm i'm wiped out
0: yeah no there's so, certain spreadsheet work that should only be done while wearing headphones and listening to music <laughs> like 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 if i have to grind through something like that that's like you put on acdc and you just <laughs> grind through like there's because there's no there's no good way of there's no was, civilized way of doing yeah. it it's a it's uh, a
1: form of human torture
0: yeah it really is it really is <laughs> uh nonetheless so um so what kind of deals do you think other than mobile home parks which we're talking about and some other stuff? What kind of deals do you think are interest what 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 kind of things do you think are interesting out there as an investor but don't necessarily work for you? Like things that conceptually make sense but not for Steve.
1: Good good question. Um hard question cuz there's a lot. I I don't like office buildings, so I did so at Jimdo I'd probably say if we If we looked back at our portfolio, 70% of our value was created through phenomenal office deals, you know, creative tech, life science, and so on. We just crushed it. Um, Now, short-term office leases I never liked. I never, ever liked because I just thought it was a frictional business where you made zero capital. So, you, you know, you do a deal, you know you got to pay new TIs, you got to pay leasing commissions, you kind of look at your cash during that period of five, three to seven year leases. And you're like, wait, I'm just, you know, treading water. I'm not moving. I'm not creating true value. I'm just banking on the cap rate compression that somebody's going to either speculate in an urban area that, oh, this is going to get revived. And they've got the magic touch to go in and rehab so the building and, and all that. Yeah. Or things. rehab the building and I can lease it up and it's the great old fool theory. And everybody keeps doing that for years on the end. Um, so that I wouldn't touch. Um, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm Texas and you know, I love Texas and so on, but I, I don't, I don't touch deals in Houston, Texas. I don't know how to play it. So someone could bring a phenomenal, opportunity that checks all the boxes on underwriting on basis on you name everything right and it's just a smoking hot deal whether it's multifamily or office would be still scary or retail or whatever I just don't understand Houston it's so cyclical it's so boom and bust there are no barriers to entry You know, the next mousetrap can get thrown up across the street. Yeah, it's famous Uh, for having
0: no zoning. I mean, it's the most deregulated market in the United States. Yeah,
1: and a lot of people do very well there. It's just one of those areas that I just don't know how to play the market.
0: Sure, sure. No, it's, uh, look, I mean, I don't have to tell you it's, you know, Texas is a big state. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's like a whole other market, it's like, well, Effectively, it is it, it's yeah. it's it, from a from a from a distance standpoint, you know, you could have gone through four states in the northeast by the time you get from Dallas to, to Houston. So you know, <laughs> it's, it's not it's the, it's not that surprising. Um, so one question I always like to ask just in today's market. Um, so uh, well, let's talk about a couple other things. So for good or bad, nothing ever works out as expected. Unexpected surprises deal you worked on recently that had something go unusually good and it wasn't planned or unusually bad and it wasn't planned.
1: Yeah, I mean let's let's go to the simple one that I referenced earlier, that restaurant deal. Um so sure. underwrote the deal, you know, it was 50% cash on cash for four years. We were killing it. Um, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden it went vacant. Um I had prepared for the worst case scenario on the initial underwriting and you know, for rents dropping down to eighteen dollars a foot triple net, and I'll be damned eighteen bucks a foot triple net was the deal. And uh and then so you know I had to grind through that and and that was tough. It taught me, you know, every and we can go way back to childhood, but I, I think you're cut for time as far as the the podcast. But um
0: probably your childhood, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably no, I, take a while.
1: There there are some actually there are some um investment uh lessons that have shaped my philosophy all the way through that i look back and i i can mark them uh, even back I, to 11 I, years I old i believe
0: that i mean there's yeah. a great article in the wall street journal i read years ago where they basically just interviewed a bunch of fortune 500 ceos about their first job and what their lessons were from their first jobs and it is you learn these lessons early in life be it in your career or in your family and those reoccurring themes come back again yeah. and again and again so I yeah mean, you're, you're not you're not the first person to, uh, to tell me something to the effect of that. They had a, a formative experience, which then, you know, dot, 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 informed their interests. And it kind of yeah. goes from there. Um, well, I,
1: I, I, say it like this and I to say this, uh, at my last, uh, when I oversaw the acquisition teams, I said, cause we would always get into these battles about, um, you know, how to look at the deal, who's underwriting is correct, how, you know, yada, yada, um, but I used to say risk is like spicy foods. No two stomachs are alike, right? So if I took you to Buffalo Wild Wings and you uh, are wired for Parmesan and garlic and I try to get you to take an Inferno, you just can't physically do it.
0: That's where you are. No, I, I yeah. was told once, uh, and it stuck with me, about the amount of risk you should take on is as much as you can and you can still, still sleep well at night. Yeah. And that's then that's a tolerance issue and that's personality more than anything else. And yeah. I don't think that's a good or a bad thing. I think it's when you talk to people if their risk tolerances you, within about a minute you find yourself talking to them about well when I was a child dot dot yeah. dot and we came to this country dot 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 like it's often informed by that. And if you look at people who can tolerate high risk and you talk to them about their experiences it's they survived certain traumas and as a result of it, they just don't perceive the risk the same way you do.
1: Yeah. Like, and, it, and it's wild because so many people kind of battle each other when you're in investment committee or so on for what ultimately the root is, is just simply a a different ability to handle risk
0: yeah and i've seen it it's it's funny i've also seen it we talk about you know formative memories i've also seen it go the other way where i I have a business partner of mine who when we first started working together he was married with kids in school and fast forward a bunch of years and now he's divorced and his kids are all grown so his tolerance for risk when he was married with kids was lower than when he's a divorced single guy who only has to support himself yeah you know he may be later in life but He's not worried about, you know. I mean, he's, wor- I mean, you know, he's still got to, you know, pay for overhead and stuff, but he's not like putting kids through college. That's a very different risk perspective. Um, yep. So it, it goes both ways. It goes both ways. So, so interest rates have gone crazy, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, you're a betting man, so to speak. <laughs> uh,
1: I hope I don't bet. <laughs>
0: but now what? I mean, interest rates have gone up. I don't think it's any surprise to you or anyone else that. That has made transactions harder to make happen, just like it's affected car loans and everything else. Um, where do you see the markets going? What's what's your read on the markets for the next twelve, twenty four, thirty six months? Like how are you? How are you? How is your prediction of where the markets are going? I guess is the way to say affecting your investment
1: decisions right now. Ooh. Um, so how deep you want to go on this?
0: We got a moment. Let's talk.
1: All right. So I'm a I'm a huge I'm a Austrian school of economics type thinker. So I am a big believer in the money supply. Um okay. I am So now we're talking about Hayek.
0: Okay, cool. Yes, cool. Yes. cool, cool. Okay. So yeah, we yeah. can get
1: into this and and for all those bitcoiners out there, you know, you're onto something as well. So um for a little crypto, you know, you gotta you're no, on a no, podcast, you it's, gotta throw cool. in, you gotta weave in. Some crypto, I, I know. Right? Well,
0: no, if I put in, <laughs> if I renamed this and I put the word crypto in it, I'd triple my audience <laughs> I, just immediately, but then I'd have to you know take an extra shower every day when I went home, so you know, oh it's, no, it's, no, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. No,
1: I see, so if you study. Bitcoin and the supply and demand aspects and kind of what it is, it's is—it's—it's actually a beautiful theory. But going into your core question of where are market's going, I'd say follow the money supply. And as quantitative tapering took place, um, you know, thats that's essentially we've sucked money out of the system. By doing that, we've created a premium on the cost of capital. Therefore, your assets are responding to that. So how bad does it get? Um, so I'm a, like I said, I'm a a data nerd. So if we, if we start with the 10 year and three month inversion and we can go back a bit. So every time, um, over since call it 73, 78, 2000 and 2006, you know, when the, the yield curve inverted the 10, three, um, five times the depth of that inversion, Of what we've currently gone through um, from November of last year to today, it's been 11 months inverted, and the depth of that has been about 1.19. So the last time that occurred was in 73 and 78. Really, 78 was exactly 1.19. So I would think we are going into a recession around may of 24 just based and...
0: on yield curve stuff yeah, yeah yeah, yeah.
1: well i can go so... deeper so no, no it's
0: no it's fair <laughs> but, but it's fair enough i mean look there are certain the market tells us things you know yeah. i mean and you know i always look at stuff on the assumption that i'm not smarter than the market because yeah. you know the market is the collective wisdom if you will so if the collective wisdom is saying something i'm not saying i can't disagree with it but it better have a damn good reason why um yeah. So yeah, no, I I hear you. I mean the well, yield credit kind of thing. Sorry,
1: I was going to say credit creation is the is the bigger issue. you are going back to the supply and demand of money. So every time net credit has dropped less than two percent, we have always been in a recession. So right now, and and so in three times that's occurred as well in seventy five, eighty, and right now Explain in twenty three. Explain what you mean by net credit. Explain what you so. Did. So the, the overall creation of credit, less inflation. So when that, when that spread differential, the real spread, is less than 2%, then we always go into a recession. Well, we're okay. less than 2%. Yeah.
0: No, you know, it's funny. I mean, a lot of, you know, I I always think back to my undergraduate days that, you know, people in an econ class, they'll talk about helicopter money. Like what if the government drops money from the sky? What happens? You know, and you get inflation because everyone feels rich. They're not, but they feel rich. They spend the money. What they never really seem to mention in any of these classes is they'll talk about helicopter money. They don't talk about, well, what if the reverse happens? What if all the money gets sucked out of the system? Quantitative tapering. Right. If all the money drops in the sky and you feel rich, then all the money getting sucked out, you feel poor. I mean, that's right. just kind of the way the world works. And, you know, that seems to be what we're experiencing right now. And and just to tie back to something we talked about earlier, and one of the reasons I was asking about this specifically, one of the questions I threw out was, well, you know, like, where's your equity coming from? And you're doing the classic GPLP money. You're bringing in friends and family. Um, I don't know about you, but all the conversations I've had with equity providers is people feel poor right now. And when equity providers feel poor, they don't invest money because, you know, they're playing a defense game. They're saying, I don't know if I want to do this value add opportunity. I don't know if I want to do this ground up development. I'd rather just sit and stare at the money in my savings account and, you know, make my 5% and shrug. Um, Equity has dried up and as equity has dried up, deals have dried up and, there you go. um Well, they I don't should. Know if that's what you're seeing out there, but I mean, that's the conversation they
1: should that's feel bad. they should feel poor because on a real basis they are. They In are. 2008, right. cap rates for multifamily were roughly 6.3 percent on average. So for every dollar of NOI that yielded about, it was like 15 bucks, roughly speaking. Uh, in value. Today, it's five, three, and it yields about $18. But on a net adjusted for inflation, real basis, you're down to 13. So when everyone says, Oh, asset prices always are are always going up, they might nominally when you pump the pump, the economy full of tremendous amounts of capital, like in 2021, we had what 41% of all dollars ever existed, I could tell you precisely what happened to cap rates. I remember doing a study, and we came up with, and this is part of some secret sauce, but we, you know, I, I tasked our group early on. This was well before the, the uh, I think it was 2017. I said, uh, let's track the amount of money and what that does to cap rates. And it was a 70% non-correlated coefficient. And you can precisely track it. So when 2020 late 2020, 2021 came around, we were thinking about disposing of an asset. And at the time, prevailing cap rates were about four and a half. And I said to our team, I said, hold tight. We're, today's four and a half is going to be tomorrow's three, six. So let's just hang with this asset that we're about to sell. And well, like sure cap rates enough, keep
0: dropping and you'll sell it for more money. You don't have to be just. Yeah,
1: well, sure enough, we sold it a four or five prior valuation for three, six. Right. So I could, we could we could nail it.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's you know, it's funny. Um what i'm enjoying about this conversation hopefully others are too is that so much of my conversations with people about real estate the markets have to deal with micro questions uh, like yeah. oh there's a new building that opened up downtown. fundamentals local yeah, fundamentals. fundamentals new construction yeah. you know they're doing a highway improvement or something um but yeah the macroeconomic stuff uh you know it becomes the tail wagging the dog like we're We're the alternative asset class, we're the 10%, which is in stocks and bonds, you know, so changes in broader economic issues have such a mammoth impact on us, because we're just sort of like this little boat bobbing on the waves, and it's like, you can do whatever you want with a boat, but if the waves get bigger, the waves get small, that's going to have a lot more effect on kind of little old us. Um, yeah,
1: I and I totally I'm a big fundamental kind of like deep value investor, Ben Graham style. So on a real sure. estate application, I'm a micro guy as well. I'm going to walk the the alley of the asset. I'm going to, sure. you know, I'm going to feel the street. I'm going to go talk to the property managers and and see what the leasing velocity is and but I'm also going to, you know, be very strategic and sit the helicopter and fly above it. Think about and, where it fits into the whole picture. Yeah, and what I've learned, I guess my over my career is I'm about sixty-five percent micro fundamentals and about thirty-five percent macro, uh, because I, you know, there's a book that I read several years ago that kind of crystallized those thoughts. It was called Invest with the Fed, and that really taught me so much. And then you overlay, you know, my, I'm a ferocious reader and just love to learn, especially now as I've gotten older, uh, more of the, you know, economic theories and so on, at least the good ones. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so. Uh, in all fairness, but it,
0: it, even the bad ones have their place. They do, actually. It's a conversation. I, I mean, you know, I, my undergrad was an econ. I read some marks. Yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. good to. People have perspectives. I mean, it's, you know. it's
1: totally true. And, you know, you can take a few, you know, bites of their apple and you can say, yeah, this actually does apply and here's how that's happening. And so, yeah, yeah it's it's a range of outcomes. But uh, but, yeah, I think my my philosophy on these things has, has definitely changed. And, you know, if you want to if you want to drive to the, the conversation, OK, with all that and what you're doing entrepreneurially, where do you want to go? I'm I'm happy to, you know, zero in on how I think to play this.
0: No, it, it's it's curious. It's interesting stuff. Look, I mean, there's definitely a lot more we could do with all this. I, I do want to shift to sort of closing thoughts and definitely there's a lot we could keep going on. But at the same time, you know, we could also do follow up, follow up stuff Um, here. I had a. A list, well, let me just rattle off a few big questions just to get your thoughts on stub stuff. I'm not going to do the whole list, but a few big thoughts. Um. I'm going to start with this one, um, office to residential conversion. There's been a lot of <laughs> conversation in the news about office to resi conversion. I have my opinions. I'm sure you do, too. Do you think it matters? Do you think that this is going to be a major trend? What do you think happens to all the office buildings and all the people who are now working from home and listening to this podcast in their houses?
1: What, yeah. What, what so. Do you think? Yeah, so I think the office is, and just to try to be super quick with it, but the, I think the office world is misunderstood like retail was a decade ago. I feel like office is going to follow the path of retail. If you talked about retail 10, 12 years ago, and I used to do a bunch of leasing, you know, we're way oversupplied, nobody wanted to do retail, it's terrible. And then all of a sudden the supply lines dropped and now retail, if you look at the numbers and you look at the delivery and you look at the supply, I think retail's down uh, as far as supply, something like 61% over the past 22-year average. Right. Yeah, 61%. And so you kind of look at that and you go, "Wow, where do I want to be for the best risk-adjusted return?" I, I I tell you, retail. So I think office. And when we were doing office, what I observed is it was the same usual suspects, which were the Fang tenants expanding everywhere. And so all most and of the want new to, office. Do you
0: want to define that for people. Fang tenants.
1: Yeah. So uh, the old uh, stock adage, or to now they're called the magnificent seven, but, right. uh, but Fang would just Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Yep. Uh, and did, did, did. and then you had your Salesforce and your others. But anyway, the, the acronyms that the stock market created, and you looked at your gains in the stock market, and then look at who was expanding across the nation when brand new office buildings that we were leasing to, and there was your demand. So, right. and I, and I, you know, let's, let's tap real quick on WeWork. So, I was, uh, we were in San Francisco, this 2016, 2017. WeWork came to us and I, I never will forget this. I remember just all the brokers talking about how it's so great and this huge white paper on on WeWork and how it's so good and so on. And I said, man, that's fantastic. So show me the books. And I looked at their entity and their lease entity that they would sign. How, I said, do, you,
0: how do you actually make money?
1: Send me, to the, send me the balance sheet. No, I wanted to know who this this quote guarantor was and who the parent was. Sure, sure. And it I just looked at it I was like, man, this is terrible. And so I remember telling the brokers going uh, you know, we won't we're not going to lease to we we will I said we will lease from you, but we won't lease to you. And so that's how, and it was just, you know, a shot across the bow at the time because we were not cool. Uh but, you know, looking back that was great. But my no, point we, in you, yeah. My point in sharing all this is you look at office, it's very misunderstood, just like retail. The A's were making, um, you know, all the, everybody was flocking to the A's. Same thing's happening in office. The B and C's were done. Same thing's happening in office. You have the bifurcation. Going back to the OTR conversions, you know, we, we came up with a thesis that we studied a little bit called the SNL crisis babies of every South and Southwest city across the U.S., and when we got into studying these old million-square-foot buildings that were built in the 70s and 80s that maybe uh, less than a handful would ever get above 80% occupancy in them and new tenants of today didn't want to lease in them, when we would study them, we would find that about the conversion was about 64% efficient. And so if you look at regular multifamily, you're closer to 80%. And so you've got a terrible inefficiency. Yeah. And so then to just yeah.
0: to talk this for everyone. So yeah, you do typical apartment building. You're going to bleed fifteen twenty percent for hallways, yeah. common areas, stuff that you can't make money off of. You're basically saying instead of bleeding twenty percent for hallways, you're bleeding thirty five percent for all that jazz. Yeah. So what, cut up right.
1: Yeah. yeah. So what are you what are you benefiting? And then the the unit layouts are really you know long and wobbly and and unorthodox and and so on. Sure. And so we would have a tough time making the math work. You know, the quick of it is, uh, I used to say we would we would have to, with incentives, compete with compete with essentially a type three podium project as far as rents. So that put us in that second tier in certain markets, like in Dallas, that would put us at the not type one high rise rents, um, uh, but right below them. And, and type so, three
0: podium, you're talking like four stories a stick over like
1: five, of- five over three.
0: Five over three. Okay. Yeah, so five, and so, five, sto- five stories for human beings, three stories for cars, basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. A podium. So, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that, but that force you just by sheer construction costs, you're at, you know, in that just under the top tier of market rents and you're not cost effective. You're, you're high, right?
0: Yeah. You're high. No. And, and that's, and that's, and you're seeing that in office prices right now. The guys are yeah. talking about office to residential conversion are essentially buying these buildings for almost for scrap value. I mean, they're buying them at such low numbers because they can't make it work any other way.
1: But you you, but you still are going to be, what, 250 into them a foot, uh, at least down here or more. And so at that point, you're like, it's still cheaper to just build a, a, a regular, you know, three-story stick garden style or some wood four-story urban project or a wrap. You're still going to be cheaper on a cost basis. And so what market are you competing for? And then then you got to go, I need a boatload of incentives. Every here, here's the part that scares me, though, to kind of drill out your question. So, I again, doing the math, let's take a million square foot building. You have 640 new units per building, roughly speaking, right, right. coming online. Let's say you have a, a downtown with a bunch of these 70s and 80s because everybody in the SNL crisis overbuilt and they were getting paid 106 to build. So they're the keys, Mr. Lender. 10 buildings, 10% of the stock gets converted. That's 6,400 new units. Right, right? You take a market like Dallas, where supposedly our pipeline is seventy thousand and deliveries are maybe twenty five thousand ish, but you add, you know, let's just take sixty. You add sixty plus another greater than ten percent to our stock. I mean, talk about a nightmare. Um, the only saving grace here is that the capital markets are shut off. But a lot of these office guys, I think we're going to look back at a lot of these OTR conversions. Maybe the first few make money, and right. then everybody else gets the playbook. And Biden uh, administration, I think, allocated $35 billion recently to, to this play. And then every city and uh, every city's tax buckets are going, how do we make this eyesore that's empty, that's killing our tax base? How do we revive it? It's It reminds me a lot of why retail was hurt in the early 2010s, which is every city planner when I was working at Avalon Bay would say, "Oh, you wanna, you want 400 units? Build us 25,000 square feet of retail." And you'd be like, "But retail doesn't work in this right. location." Right, and, and
0: this gets me to, and everything you're saying gets me to one comment, and this is my only comment I'll make, which is, you know, the sometimes the economically viable solution is not politically viable, and by <laughs> that I mean the economically viable solution might be, okay, these buildings are just obsolete
1: tear them down (laughs)
0: blow them up blow them up you know but you know do you want to be the mayor who runs on a platform of i'm going to use federal dollars to buy vacant buildings and blow up the downtown yeah you know or lose my poster view right right? every poster
1: skyline is the 80s you know if you look at dallas
0: yeah no they're all 80s every city wants a big building because that's how you know you've arrived right but you know if you run on a platform of blowing up buildings it sounds like you're defeatist it sounds like you're giving up rather to say look these structures have served their useful life they yeah. created a lot of value for the city while they were full and doing what they were supposed to do the world has changed you know we no longer have horse stables but technologies were
1: they ever over 80% occupied, but I don't a think handful they were a few.
0: I mean, I don't think they ever were. I mean, like it's I mean, it's kind of a dark joke, but I mean, you know, the joke, not joke, but like the World Trade Center, you know, the original World Trade Center was never full. It was yeah. it languished for years. And the dark joke was shortly before 9-11. It finally got to a place where the occupancy was actually kind oh, of decent, man. Yeah, you know, But it was built in the 70s, it took 20, 30 years, it finally got to a place where people are like, okay, it's actually kind of full. And then of course the disaster happened, uh, which is obviously horrible, but like, yeah, it went for years. I mean, if you actually asked people about the World Trade Center in the 1990s, was it a good idea that the state of New York and Port Authority built this thing? It cost a lot of money and economically viable, not so much.
1: Yeah. You know? And I guess, I guess, you know, to, to think about like all the good conversions were, you know, pre 1940s. So those old stock that they probably went through the same, you high know,
0: ceilings, but those had high ceilings and nice yeah. windows and all that. They were easy to convert.
1: Yeah. Easy. Yeah. But I'm also thinking like, you know, fast forward, you know, 50 years from out for all the preservationists that are listening to your call um, and not the capitalists and, um, you know, maybe maybe there is an alternative use that we adapt to over time that nobody's thinking about today that makes sure. those '80s buildings with the 40,000 foot footprints uh, viable in in some other use.
0: Someone will find a use. Someone will yeah. find a use. Technology shifts. Industry yeah. shift. Um, my only other comment to make, uh Boston's done a lot of biotech conversions. They've turned a lot of that stuff into lab space. Yeah. I mean, there is use for it, you know. It's hard um, though,
1: because of the systems needed. It's
0: it's understood. Understood. I'm just saying that like, you know but but your point is is well taken, which is times change, technologies change, and that yeah. you know, sometimes buildings outlive their useful life. I mean, they were built for creating economic wealth and you know, you know we we scrap old cars when they don't work anymore. It's not really functionally that different. Yeah, nonetheless, look, this has been a great conversation. It's good to talk about some of the bigger picture stuff. Uh, and also it was fun to sort of talk about sort of your your transition from uh, big corporate to sort of doing your own thing and doing the entrepreneurial thing. Um, I don't know, we could keep going. I think probably <laughs> the best idea, honestly, would be, We revisit some of these things uh, in a few months when you can talk about some of the bigger stuff you're working on and we can kind of come back to it. Um, With that said, unless you got anything else on your mind right now.
1: Yeah, I think if I was, uh, you know, listening to this, I I think I would want to know. So you've shared all these stats about recessions and we didn't even get halfway into it, but I know, um, uh, you know, where is it going? What to do? How do you play this? Uh, What would I recommend to play this? You know, because I've got investors out there and so on. So, you know, land, Bitcoin, gold, uh, uh, land is finite, Bitcoin is finite, and gold is scarce. And so how would I play this in this economic cycle? I, I really believe what is tangible, and I post this out too to your audience, that I do think we're going to look up in five to seven years from now, we're going to have $500 billion market cap ground lease REITs. You know, right now, one of actually a, a gentleman you used to uh, uh, teach, uh, he's yep, the I know. originator for Safehold, right? Safehold, yeah. And they're, they're kind of a, a leader and a front runner here. And there's Haven and, and Montgomery Street here in Dallas and some other folks. But I, I do believe you're going to see that space become institutionalized um, and I think you're going to see ground lease become standardized, uh, much like CNBS or Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And so I think there's going to be the historical issues with it. It was anyone's guess. And the uh, lack of predictability, lack of transparency, lack of finance ability. Right. But I long term, ground has is,
0: become a product. It's
1: I think that, that game's changing. And I think that, you know, if I'm a lender, in this market, especially a bank that's regulated by FDIC and I have deposits and could have, you know, runs on my bank. I think that's going to be the tool for the times. I really do. And so, you know, what I would like to focus on, and I've I wrote a 189-page white paper on the topic. Uh, no, no joke. What I what I would really like to focus on is is honestly creating the next ground lease read and taking advantage of this time we're in and showing why that arbitrage makes a lot of sense and why the lender can live to play another day. And this is
0: a great topic and one that definitely deserves its own much, much longer conversation. And we can get into the history of all kinds of good stuff involving ground leases. But I I do appreciate you throwing that out there as sort of a a thought experiment, not thought experiment, a a nugget to, to lock in on. So again, for everyone listening, that was uh, where this has been uh, Stephen Hutto, uh, 40 and M. uh, And we've been talking about the markets and all kinds of good stuff like that. So uh, until I see you again, Steve, uh, thanks for joining me. And um, thanks to everyone listening. Cool. Thank you. Thank you.